Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Lido. Today is Saturday, the 21st of January, and it's now still 2023. Your readers are... Gary Daner. And Alice Daner. With the reminder that Radio Eyes is a service for those blind or with other disabilities making it difficult to hold or read printed material. And we thank the publishers for giving us the newspaper to listen or to read and listen to. I start with the five-day forecast of Chris Bailey of WKYT Channel 27. Today shows sun with a large cloud, a high of 42, low 32, partly sunny. Sunday, full clouds with snow and rain below, a high 39, low 31, snow and rain. Monday, full clouds without snow and rain, high 39, low 27, low clouds may break. Tuesday looks like today. Sunshine with a big cloud in front, high 48, low 38, turning cloudy. And Wednesday looks like Sunday and Monday, but Wednesday has rain, and it says high 44, low 28, very windy and rain. It was very windy yesterday. The almanac temperature-wise, the high was 64, the normal high 42, Last year's high, 46. Record high, 68 in 1907. The low was 43. The normal low is 25. Last year's low was 30. The record low was 68 in 1907. And no, the record low, I'm sorry, the screen went goofy on me. Um, the record low was, let me pull it up, minus 20 in 1994. The precipitation on Thursday, when we last read, was 0.47. Month to date is 5.02, normal 2.12. Year to date, 5.02, normal 2.12. Last year to date, we had 5 inches. Record for the date was an inch and a Almost, I mean, literally almost two inches, 1.59 inches in 1988. Sun and moon, sun rises at 7.51 a.m., setting at 5.49 p.m. The moon rises at 8.04 a.m., setting at 5.35 p.m. The new moon is tonight. It's going to be dark. First half, January 28th. Full moon, February 5th. And the last half moon, February 13th. Uh, the rather trivia. Is it true that January has the fewest thunderstorms? Nope. December, December has the fewest. Well, there's the weather for the week. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gary? Well, and living close to the airport, which is where they get the official measurements, are on the roof system is usually pretty close. We were 0.49 or something, like two hundredths of an inch off of the rain the other day. Sometimes it's a lot of difference. However, back to the front page, enough of the trivia. Bashir plans pay raises at juvenile justice centers. Governor Andy Bashir on Thursday said he plans to spend tens of millions of dollars raising the pay of youth workers at the Kentucky Department of Juvenile Justice, where understaffed juvenile detention centers have been plagued by riots, assaults, and escapes. At a news conference, Bashir said he will raise the starting salary for youth workers in detention centers to $50,000 a year, which would be ten dollars to $15,000 of an increase from current levels. The cost for providing the raise was not provided. Staff at the DJJ, that must be the detention juvenile system, have gotten other raises in recent months, but the Bashir administration has been unable to convince many people to apply for the stressful, sometimes dangerous jobs at facilities holding youths in state custody. Vacancy rates for those positions approach 40%, Bashir said on Thursday. Apart from higher wages, Bashir said the DJJ will provide defensive equipment to youth workers to allow them to protect themselves, including pepper spray and tasers. The DJJ named Larry Chandler, a retired warden from the Kentucky Department of Corrections, as its newly appointed director of security to tour its facilities and recommend improvements to prevent future violent incidents, he said. And the state would like to begin the early construction phases of two new juvenile detention facilities to replace badly outdated facilities. I hope what people see is that nobody's running from this, Bashir said. This is a challenge and a problem that needs to be fixed. These facilities need to be safe. The juveniles need to be getting the services that they should be getting. But to do that has required real serious and significant changes. Bashir said his administration will ask the 2023 General Assembly, on break until February the 7th, for funding and regulatory assistance to support the changes he wants to make to the juvenile justice system. Rebecca Ballard Rento, a longtime children's rights attorney in Kentucky who has clients in DJJ facilities on Thursday, said she has concerns about arming youth workers even with non-lethal weapons like pepper spray. Typically, Loretto said, corrections officers inside a secure facility don't carry weapons because they can't be sure that they can control those weapons when they get into a struggle with inmates. Pepper spray is as likely to get grabbed from someone as it is to be used as intended, Loretto said, and when you do use it, it's going to spray everyone in the vicinity. It's not just going to hit your target. Replying to this concern at his news conference, Bashir said it is nonsensical not to arm these workers for fear that they might be overpowered and have their defensive weapons used against them. The point of giving them an item like pepper spray, he said, is to prevent them from being overpowered in the first place. The larger problem, Theoretto said, is that Bashir and others have been describing the use, describing the use in juvenile detention centers as dangerous predators which makes it easier to suggest tougher security is the only solution. Instead, the DJJ should offer more mental health counseling and get youth out of their cells more frequently for programming, she said. 
assaults, sex offenses, riots and escapes have become almost commonplace at juvenile detention facilities around the state. Many of the facilities are dangerously understaffed. The Bashir administration says that the use held in these facilities have become more violent in recent years and in some cases gang affiliated. This public safety problem has become a political liability for Bashir in a re-election year. Republican lawmakers in the General Assembly are creating a work group to study the troubled juvenile justice system and propose changes. And shortly before leaving office last fall, Chief Justice John Minton Jr. sent Bashir a letter expressing grave concerns, given that his court system sends youths into the detention facilities. Bashir recently announced changes in how the youth are being housed. Teen girls will be held by themselves in one detention facility in Campbell County, Bashir said, while teen boys will be segregated based on the severity of their offenses, with those facing the most serious felony charges held in maximum security centers. Until now, youths typically were housed at the nearest detention facility. Alice. Well, I already moved to page two, and there's a picture of her car upside down near a culvert, and it is upside down. And there are fire department members and police department members sort of just staring at it. And um, it's entitled, Man Pleads Guilty in Shooting Death. That's interesting, because it's a car upside down. The picture is by Ryan Hermans, and it says, Emergency crews responded to an overturned vehicle near the intersection of Midland Avenue and Midland Place in Lexington, oh, on November 20, 2020. So that's two-plus years ago. The article is by Taylor Six. A Frankfurt man has pleaded guilty after a man was shot while driving and wound up found dead underneath his overturned vehicle in Lexington. Theodric Tillman, 32, of Frankfurt, pleaded guilty last week to facilitation of murder, first-degree criminal mischief, and second-degree persistent felony offender, record courts say. The charges were amended as part of a plea deal. Tillman originally faced murder, first-degree criminal mischief, and first-degree persistent felony offender charges in the debt in connection to the death of 37-year-old Deshaun Jimerson. Jimerson, who was from Washington, was found dead the morning of November 20, 2020, after his SUV ran off the road and landed at the bottom of a large culvert at Winchester Road in Midland Place. Originally, his death was investigated as part of a fatal crash. But once his body was recovered from the scene, it was discovered he had been shot several times. Tillman was charged several months after the incident. Gen said the fatal altercation likely took place in the early hours that morning. Police announced the next day that Jimerson's death was being investigated as a homicide. Tillman faces a 12-year sentence, according to court documents. He could receive 10 years for the facilitation of murder charge and two years for the criminal mischief charge to run consecutively with one another. His sentencing is scheduled for March 3rd with Bad Circuit Judge Julie Goodman. Gary. 
A piece now by Janet Patton of the Herald Leader. Headline reads, Bourbon, Fireball Maker, Salzaric, Sue's Distributor, Republic. Salzaric, the maker of Pappy Van Winkle, Weller, Buffalo Trace, Blanton's, and other premium bourbons, has sued its former longtime distributor over millions in unpaid bills. The Spirits Company, which owns distillers in Frankfurt and Bardstown in Kentucky, as well as offices in Louisville and New Orleans, filed a lawsuit on January the 13th in U.S. District Court in Louisville against Texas-based Republic National Distributing Company. According to the complaint, RNDC owes Salzaric $38.6 million and counting in unpaid bills on wholesale liquor purchases made before the two stopped doing business together at the end of 2022. According to Salzaric, RNDC's continued refusal to pay outstanding invoices will cause damages of at least an additional $48 million. The Spirits Company is suing to get the payments. Salzaric also alleges that the distributors have had badmouth Salzaric in the marketplace, ceased cooperation with Salzaric, and otherwise attempted to harm Salzaric by unfairly disrupting future sales and the transition to new distributors. Fireball is Salzaric's biggest selling product by volume and revenue. Salzaric makes all kinds of alcohol products under about 400 different labels, including its bestseller by volume and revenue, and revenue, Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey. For more than a decade, Republic bought those products and resold them to retailers in about 30 states, according to the suit. According to the suit, Republic would oftentimes improperly condition the availability of certain high-end and highly sought-after steric products, such as Pappy Van Winkle, to its retail accounts on the purchase of non-salzeric products, commonly known as tie-in sales. In September of 2021, according to the lawsuit, Salzeric renegotiated this contract with the Republic to eliminate RNDC's role in sales and marketing, which Salzeric will take over. And RNDC would then be paid a flat-per-case fee with incentives for certain growth volumes, including Fireball. But according to the suit, after about six months, RNDC reneged and began withholding payments, and then in August of 2022, RNDC terminated the contract altogether. In January, according to the suit, RNDC raised prices on Salzeric products, canceled purchases, and refused deliveries, creating shortages at stores that RNDC has blamed on Salzernik. Unhappy retailers have complained to Salzernik and threatened to stop buying its products. RNDC's response to the complaint has not been filed as of January the 20th. Both Republic and Salzernik declined to comment. So watch Janet Patton. Alice. Well, guess what? I am already on the opinion page. Very thin front section this morning. A call for America to make health care more equitable. And there's a picture from the Los Angeles Times of a registered nurse with the Los Angeles Department of Public Health administering a COVID-19 booster at a vaccination clinic on August 23rd. COVID-19 and DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest 
which is interesting, illustrate contraction, contradictions in a medical system. The article is by Corey Franklin of the Chicago Tribune. In the January 2nd Monday night football game, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest and collapsed on the field. An immediate response by the trainers, stadium medical staff, and the superb intensive care team at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center saved Hamlin's life. The University of Cincinnati is one of the best places in the U.S. or the world for the young man to have been treated. The episode was a vivid illustration of the contradiction of the U.S. medical system. Our sophisticated emergency treatment is unrivaled, even as the comprehensive U.S. patient care system remains the world's most expensive and possibly the most dysfunctional. Nowhere has this paradox been more evident than during the COVID-19 pandemic. No country has better care for patients with advanced COVID-19, whose lungs are severely damaged by the coronavirus. But these represent only a fraction of all COVID-19 deaths because most patients die of underlying chronic health conditions or untreatable complications. This is where the U.S. is failing, and consequently, U.S. mortality and deaths per capita are higher than in most of the world. What accounts for the high U.S. death rate? The states with the highest deaths per capita are overrepresented in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Arkansas. One, two, three, four, five. Along with West Virginia, six and Arizona 7. These states, some of the poorest in the country, are among those with the highest rates of obesity and diabetes and the lowest rates of COVID-19 vaccination. Also of note, West Virginia and Arizona are two states with significantly older populations. The limited evidence suggests that some combination of age, obesity, diabetes, and low vaccination rate in the setting of poverty creates conditions for a higher COVID-19 mortality rate. Determining the relative importance of these factors requires performing a statistical technique known as multivariate analysis. And since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been relatively few studies of this type to try to ascertain how much each factor contributes to death from COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention should address this research gap. Without improvements in basic health delivery and infrastructure, no matter how many effective ventilators and other sophisticated equipment the U.S. has, we will have a comparatively high mortality as long as COVID-19 persists. We cannot control our aging population. Demography is destiny. But in the short term, we can target this population for vaccination more aggressively. Our patchwork healthcare system, in which primary care is often fragmented and insurance dependent, has done little to address our twin epidemics of obesity and diabetes. There are new breakthrough drugs for both conditions and those should be made available and affordable. 
a national program to encourage lifestyle changes. Better diet and more exercise is essential. All this may not be enough. Cutting mortality from COVID-19 may require rethinking our long-term approach. The vaccines have been effective and lucrative for the drug manufacturers, but have reduced interest and funding for the exploration of other treatments. The current strategy of updating vaccines in an attempt to immunize against new variants may fail because viral mutations could occur faster than their ability to keep pace. Our efforts would be better directed toward a universal coronavirus vaccine and new treatments, especially antiviral medication for patients to take in the event of COVID-19 infection. We need a penicillin miracle for COVID-19. Life is a series of contradictions. Helen was at once unlucky and lucky. COVID-19 is a disease of the well-fed and affluent and simultaneously a disease of the poor. In that respect, the government and medical community should make a concerted effort to improve the quality of care for the urban and rural poor, as well as for the indigenous American community, which has been hit hard by the pandemic. The pandemic is a clarion call for us to make healthcare more ambitious and more equitable. Gary. Parmi Olson, other Bloomberg Opinion, writes, Why Zuckerberg should face the threat of jail? The UK government is about to do something that will make Silicon Valley shudder or at least make social media executives think twice about flying over British airspace. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak looks all but certain to strengthen the UK's online safety bill with criminal sanctions for social media bosses after fierce lobbying from the country's ruling Conservative Party. The bill aims to protect under-18s from harmful content. So, if regulators find that Instagram has been steering British kids towards material encouraging suicide, Mark Zuckerberg could face up to two years behind bars. Harsh as it sounds, politicians across the main parties are eager for the stricter rules. The amendment will go in when the bill goes to the House of Lords, probably this spring, barring any major events, like the Prime Minister being replaced again, the online safety bill should pass before November of 2023, when UK's current session of Parliament ends. Naturally, none of this has gone down well with some tech leaders. Jimmy Wales, co-founder of Wikipedia, called the move a form of tyranny, while others suspect the Silicon Valley vendetta by British politicians. But it is actually a prudent move. Tyrannical criminal sanctions have been part of regulatory life in Britain's banking and construction industries for years, and their existence has helped keep lines of accountability clear and the process of regulation easier. In the past six months, jail sentences have been handed out to at least four people from the building trade because of fatal accidents, including the deadly fall of a 69-year-old builder who was working on a house extension last year. The manager overseeing the builder's work was jailed for nine months 
after inspectors found that the scaffold he'd been working on had no guardrails. Convictions have been more rare for financial rules that were introduced after the 2008 credit crisis to deter misconduct, but they have created a clearer chain of accountability for banks, which have been forced to draw maps of executives' roles and responsibility to give to the country's financial watchdog. Social media companies, by contrast, aren't required to divulge who is in charge of what, even though they have entire divisions devoted to critical jobs, such as stopping incitement to violence, harassment, and misinformation on their networks. Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan revealed that Instagram knew its app made body image issues worse for young women, and that Meta's engagement-based ranking system steered more people toward outrage to keep them on Facebook. For years, the company has prioritized profit over and profit over over safety, but it has mostly received slaps on the wrist from the regulators. Multi-million-dollar fines that are rounding errors for the company's gargantuan revenue. Will an amendment threatening jail actually see Zuckerberg spend two years eating beans on toast with other British prisoners? Meta and its peers will likely do whatever they can to prevent such a scenario, but the threat itself will almost certainly push firms to cooperate with greater enthusiasm when they are audited by Ofscom, the UK's new online regulator, and the rules come into force. That would be a big improvement in the status quo. It is also apt that the law comes just when big tech leaders are cutting thousands of jobs, reining back their culture of expensive perks, and telling staff they need to work harder. That's a cultural shift that big tech has needed for some time. Now it's time the people in charge lose some luxuries, too, including the legal protections they have enjoyed for years. Alice. Well, the last editorial is by Henry Olson, a special to the Washington Post. Elections around the world you should pay attention to in 2023. Elections have consequences, and not just in the United States. Here are five elections that will occur around the world this year, whose results could have outsized significance for the entire world. Finland. The prospective NATO member will go to the polls by April 2nd to select a new parliament. NATO membership is not in doubt, as no significant party opposes it. Finland's conservative party, known as the Kansilinen Kokonomus, or the National Coalition Party, has led in the polls since mid-2021 and gained strength after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If Kokomos finishes first, it will have the first chance to form a government. That could mean the return of a center-right government consisting of Kokomos, the center party, K-E-S-K, and the populace, True Finns. Or it could result in a grand coalition between Kokomos, the Social Democrats, and one other party. Denmark's Social Democratic Prime Minister, Meta Fredrikson, chose the latter option after her country's November election. 
even though her left-wing coalition retained a majority. If Finland follows suit, it would show that old foes are willing to become allies when threatened by parties who want radical change, left or right. Turkey President, Turkish President, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is seen as a strong man throughout much of the West. He has suppressed his country's free press and brought trumped-up charges against political opponents. Turkey has a vibrant political opposition that is united against Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, AKP. AKP and its ally, the National Movement Party, MIIP, have dropped significantly in polls in recent years as Turkey battles inflation at a 25-year high. Presidential and parliamentary elections will take place June 13th, with a second round for president occurring July 2nd, if no candidate wins a majority. It is not melodramatic to say that the fate of Turkish democracy is on the line with this critical vote. Argentina Once one of the world's richest nations, more than a century of economic and political incompetence, has pushed Argentina into an unhealthy cycle of slow growth, followed by inflation and recession. That cycle is once more in full swing and governing Peronist coalition, officially the Fuentes de Todos, front of all, is behind in the polls. The country's center-right alliance, Juntos por el Cambio, Together for Change, remains in first place in the polls and is likely to prevail. Interestingly, a libertarian-inclined third bloc, Liberty Advances, has formed and is gaining as much as 23%. In any case, expect a big swing to the right in Argentina's late October contest. Poland, this European, Eastern European rising powerhouse, has been aggressively pro-Ukraine since the invasion, supplying it with weapons and housing millions of refugees. But it is governed by a conservative populist party, Law and Justice, PIS, that is regularly under fire from the European Union for its alleged anti-democratic practices. PIS remains Poland's most popular party, but it is running a few points below the 44% it received in the last parliamentary vote. All the polls show it would not win a majority if the election in the fall were held today. And Spain, number five. This country could continue the continual trend toward conservative populist alliances in its December election. The main center-right party, Partido Popular, PP, has led most polls since June. Vox, a national populist party to its right, has also consistently placed third, with the two groupings winning close to a majority of the total vote. Given Spain's proportional representation system, which awards seats by small subregions, this easily gives the two a majority in Parliament. The incumbent left-of-center coalition of the Socialist, PSOE, and left populist Podemos, UP, however, will surely raise the specter of extremism 
as it tries to tarnish Vox and regain the upper hand. Regional elections in May will be an early barometer. It's now time to turn to the obituaries and we read the name and age and location if they're given. Today there are only three, but if, and there are none that are full obituaries, uh, but if you have any interest in calling an office, well, it won't do any good because these are just death notices, so we can skip that today. The first is Carl L. Dennis, 72, of Jeffersonville. John Michael Evans, 45, of Versailles. Kenneth Carl Phillips, 76, Lawrenceburg. And that concludes the reading of the obituaries for today. Alice? Well, I go back to the front page, and there is a picture of a large crowd in Washington, D.C., by Patrick Szymanski. It's entitled, March for Life Eyes Congress for Abortion Limits. And the picture is entitled, People Participate in the March for Life Anti-Abortion Rally Friday in Washington. It was the first March for Life since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, ending federal protections for abortion and sending the matter back to the states. The article is by Sheriff Khalil and Calvin Woodward, both of the Associated Press and out of Washington. A half a century after Roe v. Wade, March for Life supporters on Friday celebrated the dismantling of that constitutional right to abortion and the return of abortion policymaking to the people. President Joe Biden pledged to do all in his power to restore that right. The first March for Life, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, came with a new focus. Instead of concentrating their attention on the court, the marchers vowed to push for action from the building directly across the street, the U.S. Capitol. Movement leaders say they plan to warn Congress against making any attempt to curtail the multiple anti-abortion laws imposed last year in a dozen states. Thousands spread across a section of the National Mall for the event, the Capitol building in sight from a distance. We have returned abortion policy making to the people, to you, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch whose office argued the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, said in prepared remarks to the crowd. Biden offered his counterpoint in a proclamation recognizing Sunday, January 22nd, as the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Never before has the court taken away a right so fundamental to Americans, his statement said. In doing so, it put the health and lives of women across this nation at risk. He said he would continue to use his executive authority in any way he can to preserve abortion protections while urging Congress to enshrine such rights in law. The crowd appeared smaller than in past years but bore multiple hallmarks of previous marches in the enthusiasm of the gathering. The large numbers of young people from Catholic schools around the country and plenty of banners representing different churches and religious orders. The struggle has changed, said Marion Landry, 68, who came from North Carolina with her husband, Arthur, 91, for the sixth time. In some ways, you don't have that central focus anymore. Now it's back to the states. 
Mike Miller, 59, who came from Boston, has attended at least 15 such marches over the years. There's still a lot of work to do, he said. This is only one step, and in the next step, education becomes the biggest thing. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy offered support in a statement pledging that the new Republican majority will stand with abortion rights opponents. McCarthy said, While others raise their voices in rage and hatred, you march with prayers, goodwill, fellowship, compassion, and devotion in defense of the most defenseless in this country. Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life Education and Defense Fund, said the marches a somber reminder of the millions of lives lost to abortion in the past 50 years, but also a celebration of how far we've come and where we as a movement need to focus our efforts as we enter this new era in our request or in our quest to protect life. Some movement leaders also hope to plant seeds in Congress for a potential federal abortion restriction down the line. Marjorie Dan Fessel, Fessler, president of SBA Pro-Life America, said she envisions an eventual federal minimum standard cutoff line, such as 13 weeks of pregnancy, after which abortion would not be permitted in any state. Dan Felser's scenario would still leave individual states free to impose their own stricter measures, including a total ban. That last ambition is an admitted long shot, since even if it passes the newly Republican-controlled House, it would most likely fail in the Democratic-held Senate. We know it's not going to happen this session, but this is the beginning. It's Congress's responsibility to listen to the will of the people, Dan Felzer said. Gary. Well, continuing on the front page, there's a piece by Prescott. Patrick Whittle of the Associated Press, and it's accompanied by a photograph taken in 2018 of a fishing boat, a lobster fishing boat, heading out to sea off South Portland, Maine. The photo was taken by Robert F. Buckety of the Associated Press, and part of the caption under the photo of the boat heading to sea is the growing warmth and saltiness of the Gulf of Maine is creating a slew of unwanted challenges for the state's fishing industry. And it reads, headline, loss of tiny organisms hurts the ocean and fishing, scientists say. The warming of the waters off the east coast has become an invisible but very at a very steep cost. The loss of microscopic organisms that make up the base of the ocean's food chain. The glowing, growing warmth and saltiness of the Gulf of Maine off New England is causing a dramatic decrease in the production of phytoplankton, according to Maine-based scientists who recently reported results of a years-long NSA-funded study. Phytoplankton, sometimes described as an invisible forest, are tiny plant-like organisms that serve as food for marine life. The scientists found that photoplankton are about 65% less productive in the Gulf of Maine, part of the Atlantic Ocean bounded by New England and Canada, than they were two decades ago. The Gulf of Maine has emerged as one of the fastest warming sections of the world's oceans. 
potential loss of phytoplankton has emerged as a serious concern in recent years in other places, such as the Bering Sea off Alaska. The loss of the tiny organisms has the ability to disrupt valuable fishing industries for species such as lobster and scallops, and they could further jeopardize imperiled animals such as the North Atlantic right whales and Atlantic puffins, scientists said. The drop in the productivity of these 20 years is profound, said William Bolt, a senior research scientist with Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in East Booth Bay, Maine, who led the study. And that has large ramification to what can grow here, the health of the ecosystem, the productivity of the ecosystem. The scientists did the study using data gathered since 1998 by tracking chemical changes in the Gulf of Maine. The samples used to perform the work were gathered via commercial ferries and research vessels that run the same routes over and over. The data showed changes between the Gulf and the broader Atlantic, Walsh said. Intrusions of warm water from the North Atlantic since 2008 have created a Gulf that is hotter, saltier, and less hospitable to the photoplankton, the study says. The scientists published their findings last June in the journal Geophysical Research, Biogeosciences. Photoplankton are eaten by larger zooplankton, small fish and crustaceans, and they are critically important to the sustaining of larger marine life up the food chain, such as sharks and whales. Loss of phytoplankton will likely have negative impact on the overall productivity of larger animals and commercial fisheries, the study states. Decline of fish stocks in the Gulf of Maine would be especially disruptive to American fishermen because it's a key ground for the U.S. lobster industry. Other important species such as haddock, flounder, and pollock are also harvested there. Researchers have tracked similar warning trends in the Bering Sea, South Ocean, and North Barents Sea in recent years. Warming's impact on plankton is an ongoing subject of scientific inquiry. In 2020, an article in the Journal of Nature Communications found that the climate change is, quote, predicted to trigger major shifts in the geographic distribution of marine plankton species. Cyclical ocean conditions also have placed more stress on photoplankton. An El Nino climate pattern when surface water in the equatorial Pacific becomes warmer can reduce photoplankton production the ocean, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has said. The impact includes a lack of anchovies off South America, fewer squid off California, and less salmon in the Pacific, the National Oceanographic uh, Administration said. The main scientists say loss of photoplankton is also significant because the organisms absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, much like plants do on land. It's part of the toll climate change is taking our ecosystems all over the world, said Jeff Runge, a professor at the University of Maine School of Marine Scientists who was not involved in the study. There's mounting evidence that it's linked to climate change, Runge said. It's having all kinds of effects on the system that we're now beginning to see. Alice.
The last article on the front page is Supreme Court Fails to Find Leaker of Abortion Opinion by Mark Sherman and Jessica Gresco, both out of the Associated Press out of Washington. The Supreme Court said Thursday that an eight-month investigation that included more than 120 interviews and revealed shortcomings in how sensitive documents are secured has failed to find who leaked a draft of the court's opinion overturning abortion rights. Ninety-seven employees, including the justices' law clerks, swore under oath they, they did not disclose a draft of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade, the court said. It was unclear whether the justices themselves were questioned about the leak, which is the first time an entire opinion made its way to the public before the court was ready to announce it. Politico published the explosive leak detailing the Alito draft in early May. Chief Justice John Roberts ordered an investigation the next day into what he termed an egregious breach of trust. On Thursday, the court said its investigative team has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. The investigation has not come to an end, the court said. A few inquiries and the analysis of some electronic data remain. The court said it could not rule out that the opinion was inadvertently disclosed, for example, by being left in a public space either inside or outside the building. While not identifying the leaker, the investigation turned up problems in the court's internal practices, some of which were exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic and the shift to working from home. Too many people have access to sensitive information. The court's policies on information security are outdated, and in some cases, employees acknowledged revealing confidential information to their spouses. It was not clear from the report whether investigators talked to the justices' spouses. Some employees had to acknowledge in their written statements that they admitted to telling their spouses about the draft opinion or vote count, the report said. Investigators looked closely at connections between court employees and reporters, and they found nothing to substantiate rampant speculation on social media about the identity of the leaker. The investigation concluded that it is unlikely that the court's information technology IT systems were improperly accessed by a person outside the court. Following an examination of the court's computers, networks, printers, and available call and text logs, the risk of both deliberate and accidental disclosures of court-sensitive information grew with the coronavirus pandemic and shift to working from home, the report said. More people working from home, as well as gaps in the court security policies, created an environment where it was too easy to remove sensitive information from the building and the court's IT networks, the report said. The leak itself sparked protest around the clock security at justices' homes. When the final decision was released on June 24th, it was remarkably similar to the draft that was leaked. Speculation has swirled since the draft's release, 
about who it, who might be the source. Only the justices, a small number of staff and the justices' law clerks, would have had access to the documents. Gary. Well, continuing now, the rest of the paper uh, brings us to an interesting article written by Danielle Miller of the Los Angeles Times. And it's accompanied uh, by a photo by Justin Sullivan. And it's of a flooded street. You're looking down the street, and the sides of the road are slightly higher than the street, apparently, because there are some cars up near their garages on what appears to be dry driveways. But a lot of cars are in the street and are very, very flooded, as is evident from the photograph. And it says, the caption under the photo says, Cars sit in flood water on January the 11th in Plandata, California. The Central Valley town was devastated by widespread flooding after a severe atmospheric river event. Thousands of damaged vehicles from California could be retitled with salvage or junk designations and then auctioned. The headline reads, Cars from California's flood could arrive at a dealer near you. The article reads, It's the smell that'll give it away. You had better get your face close to carpet, urged Ivan Drury of Edmonds, the Automotive Information Service. Now take a whiff. That gross, musty smell, says Drury, is a big red flag. It means the vehicle most probably has been in a flood. Soon, these may be the perils of shopping for a used car in California. That's because hundreds, if not thousands, of vehicles were inundated during the series of rainstorms that ripped through much of the state in January. They generated the sort of flooding that can wreak havoc on automobiles. Think of rusty floorboards, waterlogged electronics, and inoperable engines. In the days and weeks ahead, the complex ecosystem of insurance companies, auction houses, car dealers, and others will process these soggy automotive casualties. Many will eventually wind up for sale again, and at least some of those rides will be risky buys. Kenneth Potiker, owner of Rightway Auto, Auto Dismantlers, knows what advice he'd give to people considering the purchase of such a vehicle. He said, I would tell them not to buy a car like that. That would be the best advice, said Potiker, whose San Bernardino company sells used auto parts. If it floods inside a car, water damage is one of the worst types of damage. Many flooded vehicles will be totaled by insurance companies, but it's generally done when the cost of necessary repair work is equal to or more than the value of the vehicle. These cars will be retitled via the California Department of Motor Vehicles with salvage or junk designations, which alert consumers to their past damage or other issues. Then, a large number will be unloaded at auctions conducted by companies such as Copart and insurance auto auctions based in Dallas and Westchester, Illinois, respectively. A host of bidders will compete for the drowned derelicts, some of whom may have less than honest intentions for the reselling of the rides. And that matters, because cars that have suffered water damage could be perilously unsafe both physically and technologically, 
even if they don't look that way, said Drury, editor of Insights for Edmonds. Number one, your electrical system. You've got so much electronics on a car, now more so than ever. Technology systems prevent you from getting into an accident, and now you're in more danger, he said. And there's the vehicle physically deteriorating over time. Following Hurricane Ian's devastating assault on Florida and neighboring states in September, Carfax, the vehicle data firm, warned consumers of the risk of buying used cars with water damage. The company also estimated that flooding brought on by the hurricane may have damaged as many as 358,000 vehicles. Alice. Gary, read on. I've lost it. Okay. Next article is something that Alice and I kind of relate to because we were there uh, this fall. It's out of Lima, Peru. The headline reads, Peruvian capital braces for new round of protests. Thousands of protesters demanding the ouster of President Dino Bolarte poured into Peru's capital this week, clashing with police who fired tear gas. Many came from remote regions. Alice, that would be such as Cusco and Puno. Yep, I remember. Millions have died in unrest that has gripped the county since Peru's first leader from a rural Andean background was removed from office last month. The protests have been marked by Peru's worst political violence in more than two decades and highlighted deep division between the country's urban elite, largely concentrated in Lima and poor rural areas. Former President Pedro Castillo has been in detention and is expected to be tried for rebellion since he was impeached after a failed attempt to dissolve Congress. Protesters were expected to take to the streets of downtown Lima again Friday, though the city was quiet in the morning, with less movement in the center of the capital than is normal for a weekday. Thursday was mostly quiet, but punctuated by scuffles and tear gas. The government called on everyone who could to work from home. After sundown, clashes escalated, and late that night, Thursday night, a major fire broke out at a building near the historic San Martin, Plaza San Martin, although no connection to the protest was immediately clear. Firefighters managed to put out the blaze early Friday morning, authorities said, noting that the cause of the fire was still unknown. The old building housed 28 people who all were forced to evacuate amid a risk of collapse. Anger at Bolarte was the common thread Thursday as protesters chanted calls for her resignation and street sellers hawked t-shirts saying, Out! Dina Bolarte! Dina murderer! Peru repudiates you! A new election! Let them all leave! Peru's ombudsman said at least 13 civilians and four police officers were injured in the Lima protests on Thursday. A total of 22 police officers and 16 civilians were injured Thursday throughout the country, Interior Minister Vicente Romero Fernandez said. Protesters blamed Bolarte for the violence. Our God says thou shalt not kill your neighbor. Dina Bolarte is killing. She's making brothers fight. Polina Konsak said she carried a large Bible while marching in downtown Lima with more than 2,000 protesters from Cusco. 
Many Lima residents, oh, Cusco, by the way, was the ancient capital of the Incas. Many Lima residents also joined today's protests with strong presences from students and union leaders. We're at a breaking point between dictatorship and democracy, said Pedro Mamanini, a student at the National University of San Marcos, where the demonstrators who traveled for the protest were being housed. The university was surrounded by police officers who also were deployed at key points of Lima's historic downtown district. 11,800 officers in all, according to Victor Zanabria, the head of the Lima police force. Polarte was defiant Thursday night in a televised speech alongside key government officials in which he thanked the police for controlling the violent protest and vowed to prosecute those responsible for violence. Bolarte, who said she supports a plan to hold elections for president and Congress in 2024, two years before originally scheduled. The president also criticized the protesters for not having any kind of social agenda that the country needs, accusing them of wanting to break the rule of law and raise questions about their financing. For much of the day, the protests played out as a cat-and-mouse game with demonstrators, some of whom threw rocks at law enforcement, trying to get through police lines, and officers responding with volleys of tear gas that sent protesters fleeing, using rags dripped in vinegar to alleviate the sting to their eyes and skin. We're surrounded, said Sophia Lopez, 42, as she sat on a bench outside the Supreme Court. We've tried going through numerous places, and we end up going around in circles. Lopez came from Carabet Vallejo, around 35 kilometers or 22 miles north of the capital. By early afternoon, protests had turned key roads in the large pedestrian areas in downtown Lima. There were visible frustrations among the protesters who had hoped to march to the Mir Forest District, an emblematic neighborhood of economic right elite eight kilometers from downtown. We're surrounded, said Sofia Lopez. Oh, they just did that one. In Mia Flores Park, a large police presence separated anti-government protesters from a small group of demonstrators expressing support for law enforcement. Police fired tear gas there as well to disperse demonstrators. By bringing the protest to Lima, Demonstrators hoped to give fresh weight to the movement that began when Bilarte was sworn into office on December the 7th to replace Castillo. When there are tragedies, bloodbaths outside the capital, it doesn't have the same political relevance in the public agenda than if it took place in the capital, said Alonzo Cardenas, a public policy professor at the Antonio Ruiz de Montoya University in Lima. Protests were also held elsewhere. A video posted on social media showed demonstrators trying to storm the airport in southern Arequipa, Peru's second city. They were blocked by police and one person was killed in the ensuing clashes, Peru's ombudsman said. That was one of three airports that suffered attacks from protesters on Thursday, Bolarte said, adding it wasn't a mere coincidence that they were stormed on the same day. As the sun set, Fires smoldered to the streets of downtown Lima as protesters threw rocks at police officers who fired so much tear gas it was difficult to see. 
I'm feeling furious, said Veronica Puchar, 56, coughing from the tear gas. We're going to return peacefully. Puchar is a resident of Lima whose parents are from Cusco. Clashes started after dark and escalated after dark and late Thursday evening a raging inferno broke out in the old building near the protests that were taking place in the Plaza San Martin in downtown Lima. But its relationship to the demonstrations was not immediately clear. Images showed people rushing to get their belongings out of the building that was close to several government offices. Activists that dubbed Thursday's demonstration in Lima as the Curiato Sirios March, a reference to the four cardinal points of the Inca Empire, is also the name given to a massive 2000 mobilization when thousands of Peruvians took to the streets against the autocratic government of Alberto Fujimori, who resigned months later. But there are key differences between those demonstrations and this week's protest. In 2000, the people protested against the regime that was already consolidated in power, Cardina said. In this case, they're standing up to a government that has only been in power for a month and is incredibly fragile. The 2000 protests had also centralized leadership and were led by political parties. The latest protests have largely been grassroots efforts without a clear... Are we traveling to Peru? Good Lord, that's a long article. Please, Alice, let me finish. Okay. A dynamic that was clear Thursday as protesters often seem lost and didn't know where to head next as their path is continually blocked by law enforcement. The protests have grown to such a degree that demonstrators are unlikely to be satisfied with Malarty's resignation and now are demanding more structural reform. Protesters on Thursday said they would not be cowed. This isn't ending today. It won't end tomorrow. But only once we achieve our goal, said 61-year-old David Lozonda, as he looked on at a line of police officers wearing helmets and carrying shields, blocking protesters from leaving downtown Lima. I don't know what they're thinking. Do they want to spark a civil war? Alice, it's now your turn to read. I don't even know where you were. Anyway, I'm going back to page two of the first section. Google parent alphabet to cut 12,000 jobs. And hold on, I'm going to come right back to you. All right, I'm back to Google parent alphabet to cut 12,000 jobs by Julian Mark and Ellen Francis of the Washington Post. Google's parent company, Alphabet, is cutting about 12,000 jobs, CEO Sundar Picha said Friday, making it the latest tech titan to announce mass layoffs in the face of a potential economic downturn. Over the past two years, we've seen periods of dramatic growth. To match and fuel that growth, we hired for a different economic reality than the one we face today, he wrote. Pichai shared the news in an email to staff that was also posted on the Tech Giants blog Friday. He said the job cuts estimated at 6% of the workforce, span the company's productive product areas, functions, levels, and regions that decision followed, that the decision follow a review to ensure that our people and roles are aligned with their highest priorities as a company. 
One of those priorities is the company's big bet on artificial intelligence, which Pichai mentioned the multiple times in his note, saying that the company will soon announce some entirely new experiences for users, but the cuts were necessary to move ahead, he said. Alphabet is the latest big tech company to slash positions after expanding rapidly during the pandemic to meet surging demand for software and gadgets as people spent more time at home. But that demand has waned with the return to in-person life, while rising interest rates have made borrowing money for new investments more expensive. This week, Microsoft announced layoffs of 10,000 employees earlier in January. Amazon said it was eliminating 18,000 workers, while Facebook's parent, Meta, trimmed 11,000. According to the tracking site, layoffs.fyi, more than 190,000 workers have been laid off in the tech industry last year and so far this year. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Even as recent data indicates a resilient job market, some analysts have called tech's retrenchment a harbinger of a recession as large-scale layoffs have also hit the finance, media, and housing sectors. As an almost 25-year-old company, we're bound to go through difficult economic cycles, Pichai wrote. The company would use the moment to refocus its priorities, which includes its investments in artificial intelligence, he added, saying, we have substantial a substantial opportunity in front of us with AI across our products and are prepared to approach it boldly and responsibly. Once a major disruptor, Google's search engine business may now be under threat by another potential disruptor. Artificial intelligence-powered chatbots such as ChatGPT, whose release late last year prompted Google management to declare a code red as the New York Times reported. Google has been developing its own chatbot, which has yet to be publicly released. Boo. Continuing, it's a piece by Marcia Dunn of the Associated Press out of Cape Canaveral, and it's accompanied by a photograph by M. Zamini and D. Demartin of the National Science Foundation's Nori Lab. It's a photograph of taken by the new uh, satellite. The caption says, say cheese, and it says the galactic photo shoot captures three billion stars. It's taken across what's called the galactic plane, in other words, right across the center of this Milky Way galaxy. Astronomers have captured it goes on to say, more than three billion stars and galaxies in one of the biggest sky surveys ever. This galactic study, photo shoot, has picked up the dark en- by the dark energy camera on a telescope in Chile, made the observations, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the satellite, a dark energy camera on a telescope in Chile made the observations over a two-year time period, focusing on the southern hemisphere sky. The National Science Foundation's Nori Lab released the survey results this week. Shown in remarkable detail, 
Most of these Milky Way objects are stars. The count also includes small, distant galaxies that may have been in the past mistaken as individual stars. It's like taking a group shot and being able to distinguish not only each individual, but the color of their shirt, said lead researcher Andrew Sedajari, a doctoral candidate in physics at Harvard University. Despite many hours of staring at images containing tens of thousands of stars, I'm not sure that my mind is wrapped around the magnitude of these numbers, Sedajari said in an email. This latest survey now covers 6.5% of the night sky, according to the researchers. It includes the results of a survey released in 2017 that cataloged 2 billion celestial objects, mostly stars. With hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way, the cosmic catalog is certain to grow. No further updates are planned for this particular survey, Sanjajari said, but upcoming telescopes will tackle even larger areas of sky. Alice. Three active-duty Marines charged in Capitol Riot by Alana Durkin Richer of the Associated Press. A Marine who said he was waiting for Civil War II and two other active-duty members of the military have been charged with participating in the riot at the U.S. Capitol, authorities said in newly filed court papers. Micah Coma and Joshua Abate and Dodge Dale Hallinan were arrested this week on misdemeanor charges after their fellow Marines helped investigators identify them in footage among the pro-Trump mob on January 6, 2021, according to court papers. Dozens of people charged in the riot have military backgrounds, but these three are among only a handful on active duty. A Marine Corps officer seen on camera scuffling with police and helping other members of the mob force their way into the Capitol was charged in 2021. No defense lawyers for the men were listed in the court docket, so it was not immediately clear whether they have attorneys to comment on their behalf. Their surface Service records show they are all active-duty Marines. Major Kevin Stevenson, a spokesman for the Marine Corps, said he it is aware of the allegations and is fully cooperating with appropriate authorities in support of the investigation. Coma of Indiana is stationed in Southern California's Camp Pendleton. Abbey of Virginia is a Fort Meade in Maryland and Hollanden of Michigan is stationed at North Carolina's Camp Lejeune, according to Marines. The men spent about 52 minutes inside the Capitol, authorities say. At one point, while in the rotunda, they put a red Make America Great Again hat on a statue to take pictures with it, according to court papers. Hollanden was carrying a Don't Tread on Me flag, authorities said. Coma posted photos on Instagram that appeared to be taken inside the Capitol with the caption, Glad to be part of history, according to court documents. Days after the 2020 election, he and and another person discussed over Instagram message how he believed the election was rigged. And in late January 2021, he told another person in a message that everything in this country is corrupt. We honestly need a fresh start. I'm waiting for the boogaloo, Coma wrote in a message detailed in court documents. 
When asked by the person what's a boogaloo, Coleman responded, Civil War II, authorities said. The boogaloo is an anti-government, pro-gun extremist movement. Its name is a reference to a slang term for a sequel, in this case, a second U.S. Civil War. The movement is named after Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo, the 1984 sequel to a movie about breakdancing. Gary. Well, now it's time to turn to the extra section. And there's a very interesting article, it's the lead article there. It's by Sidney Page, which is a special feature of Washington Post. And it has a photograph supplied by Laura Carney showing her skydiving in New Jersey in June of 2017. The headline to the article reads, She found her father, her late father's bucket list and then spent six years completing it. The tattered paper was stashed away in a brown suede pouch, along with her father's driver's license, a ring, and various trinkets. Laura Carney looked down at it, her late father's bucket list, scribbled on three pages torn from a spiral notebook, and then she glanced up at her husband. Without a word spoken, they both knew. I needed to finish it. This is what I'm supposed to do, said Carney, 44. She'd been wanting to find a way to understand her dad a little better, said Carney's husband, Stephen Seelkerman. As soon as we saw the list, it was immediate like, this is it. Carney uncovered the treasure in 2016, 13 years after her father, Michael Mick Carney, was tragically killed by a distracted driver when he was 54. Her brother David was the first to spot it. The list, Carney said, was written in 1978, the year she was born. It had 60 tasks, five of which had already been checked off, including do a comedy monologue on the, in a nightclub and see a World Series game live. One was marked fail, pay back my dad, $1,000 plus interest. That left 54 items for Carney to complete. Five years and 11 months after the discovery, she finally checked off the last item on December 27th, 2022. It was a thing I needed to do so I could get back in touch with my real self, she said. I was still carrying this grief and this trauma, and I had no idea that I was. The list is titled, Things I Would Like to Do in My Lifetime! Exclamation point. Tasks ranging from the relatively simple undertakings like swim the width of a river and grow a watermelon to more complicated endeavors like correspond with the Pope and be invited to a political convention. Several travel goals are listed too, including trips to New Orleans, San Diego, Las Vegas, Chicago, Paris, London, and Vienna, among other destinations. At first, looking at the list, it was daunting, particularly since several tasks were seemingly impossible mainly talked to the president. Still, Carney was undeterred. Carney was 25 when her father was hit by a 17-year-old driver who ran a red light while chatting on a cell phone in Limerick, Pennsylvania. At the time, Carney was an aspiring writer and living in New York City. She and her husband were now based in Montclair, New Jersey. In the immediate aftermath of her father's death, I didn't talk about it, Carney said. 
I really had some shame about it because it felt like such an undignified way to die. A few years later, though, she became an activist for safe driving, writing articles about the subject, fundraising, giving talks and interviews. She met a group of people who were trying to do something to solve what had become a much more common way to die, Courtney said. While she felt a sense of purpose being an activist, the trauma of her father's death lingered. For Carney, who was a freelance writer and a copy editor, a bucket list was an unexpected opportunity to work through her pain and reconnect with her dad. I found a way to keep his spirit alive in my life, she said. I think I was always meant to do this. I just don't think I would have had the courage to take it on if this list hadn't fallen in my lap. Initially, she gave herself a four-year deadline hoping to cross off the last task by 2020. The coronavirus pandemic, which derailed travel prospects, pushed her plan back two years. When she first got the list, she pulled up her calendar and crafted a tentative timeline. She put off the pricier items, including going to the Super Bowl and visiting Europe, as well as the items that scared her most, drive a Corvette. The first couple ones that I did happened organically, Gordon explained, adding that she'd already signed up for a marathon, which allowed her to check, run 10 miles straight off the list. Another item she completed early on was talk with the president. She learned that Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter, who would have been president when Carney's father wrote the list, taught Sunday school in Georgia. She flew there to meet him. For some of the items on the list, Carney used poetic license. She said, for instance, one task is sing at my daughter's wedding. The way we honored him at my wedding was we drank a Cabernet that he had purchased in 1978, said Carney, adding that he had left a note on the bottle, which said, open on Laura's wedding day. It had been sitting there, waiting. As a writer, I was thinking, well, our bellies were singing, said Carney. She bought the same bottle of wine and is reserving it for her niece's wedding to fulfill another item on her father's list. Dan set my grandchildren's wedding. While Carney completed many of the tasks on her own, including a two-week trip to Europe, it didn't really feel like I was doing things alone because I knew my dad was with me. I see, I felt, I feel like my relationship with him is very present. In addition to kind strangers who supported her along the way, Carney's brother and mothers accompanied her for some activity and her husband joined her for others. After about the first year or two of doing this project, he would say to me that the person he had always seen in me was coming out, Carney said. I had all these layers of grief and trauma and fear that I was leaving behind. Her husband only had the opportunity to meet her father once, and it was five days before he died. It was helping him have a relationship with my dad as well, she said. Sigmund was said, watching his wife, whom he married in 2016, work her way through the list, was like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. Carney, completing the bucket list, enabled her to get to know her dad in a way that she hadn't had the chance to and never thought she would.
These were his goals and his dreams, she said. It helped me understand him better to see him as a full human being instead of just my embarrassing dad. And doing that helped me to understand myself. Until I found the list, I thought I was more like my mom, she continued. As I did the list, these parts of me would emerge that were very much like him. Like his daughter, Mick Carney was a writer and even self-published a book in the 70s. He spent his days working as a salesman and his spare time singing, writing, and performing. My dad was such a dreamer, Carney said. He knew what it meant to be alive. He knew how to have fun. He used to always say, life is lived in the little moments, she added. Realizing her father's bucket list was the most fulfilling experience of her life, she said, which is why she chronicled the journal journey in an upcoming memoir, My Father's List. Carney also wrote her own bucket list. I really encourage everyone to write down what they want to do, she said. It helps you start living more intentionally. And when you're living intentionally, you feel more of a sense of purpose in your life. Carney isn't afraid of seeming of leaving some items unchecked on her own list. Even if this doesn't happen in my lifetime, she said, Maybe someone will do it for me. I like that idea. On December the 27th, Carney checked off the last task on her dad's list. Have five songs recorded. She picked her father's favorites, including Jim Henson's The Rainbow Connection and The Beatles' Good Night. She recorded them in a studio and did the final touches at home. My fondest memories of him are him singing to us before he went to bed at night, Carney said. It felt like I was singing with him again, Alice. That is a touching story. And just a little background, our youngest son had the privilege of starting a Corvette. Remember when we took him down to the, um, we took him and some friends down to the Corvette factory down in Bowling Green? And two of the boys, well, they're not singers. Well, actually, Danny is a singer and a guitar player. And Jeff has played in a band, I guess, Alice, since about the time he was nine. Yep. Or something like that. And is still corporate lawyer by day, drummer by night. And doing a charity event this weekend with uh, a lot of songs based on colors. That's what his weekend is this weekend. Wish we could be there. Also in the extra section. Defense chiefs failed to resolve dispute on tanks for Ukraine. And there's a picture of President Zelensky on a Zoom photograph with three military that looked like the Billy Goat Gruffs. They are small, tall, and tall, all standing side by side in their fatigues. Um, and this is... Um, these soldiers were attending the opening speech of the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, during the meeting of the Ukraine Security Contact Group at Ramstein Air Base in Ramstein, Germany. The article Ramstein Ram for us German speakers. Ramstein, Germany. Thank you, Lolita. C. Baldor and Tara Kopp of the Associated Press wrote the article. And it's from Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Of course, it's a stein, a beer, not a stein, a beer. It's a beer stein. 
No, you... I think it's a stone, but don't worry. About it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ukraine will have to wait longer to find out if it will get advanced German-made battle tanks. A dispute over sending the tanks from Western allies to help Ukraine against Russia's invasion played out both in public and private on Friday as more than 50 defense leaders meeting in Germany failed to hammer out an agreement, stalled by Berlin's hesitation. Failure to reach agreement on what has become an urgent request from Ukrainian leaders excuse me, largely overshadowed commitments from a number of nations, including the U.S., to send billions of dollars in equipment and weapons to the war effort. While U.S. and NATO... <coughs> wow, excuse me. U.S. and NATO leaders denied any dissension in the ranks and praised Germany for its widespread weapons and training contributions to Ukraine. A smaller group of leaders met privately with the Germans to try to find common ground. They were unable to forge a census on sending the German-made Leopard tanks. Polish Defense Minister Maruz Balczak said Friday that 15 countries that have the Leopards discussed the issue, but no decisions were made. He called the meeting a good discussion among allies and said the matter would be discussed again at future talks. Germany would need to agree for the tanks to be given to Ukraine, which is not a member of NATO. Despite pleas from Ukrainian officials, Germany has so far resisted mounting pressure to quickly supply Leopard 2 tanks to Kiev or at least clear, away the, clear the way for other countries, such as Poland, to deliver them from their own stocks. Asked at the close of the Friday meeting whether Germany was doing enough, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin responded, Yes, but we can all do more. They are a reliable ally, and they've been that way for a very, very long time. And I truly believe that they'll continue to be a reliable ally going forward. Austin said, Austin also downplayed the immediate importance of tanks, noting that the U.S. striker combat vehicles and Bradley armored vehicles that were being sent would give Ukraine a new capability in the war. This really isn't really about one single platform, he said. The defense leaders heard an impassioned plea for more military aid from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Speaking via video link, he told the gathering that terror does not allow for discussion. The war started by Russia does not allow delays, Zelensky said. Germany acknowledged there had been no resolution. But speaking to reporters outside the conference hall, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said, we will make our decisions as soon as possible. He said he had ordered the ministry to look into Germany's tank stocks so he could be prepared for a possible green light and be able to act immediately. Pistorius added that Germany will balance all the pros and contras before we decide things like that. I am very sure that there will be a decision in the short term, but I don't know how the decision will look. The issue, however, has grown increasingly complicated. The U.S. has resisted providing its own M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, 
citing extensive and complex maintenance and logistical challenges with the high-tech vehicles. Washington believes it would be more productive to send German Leopards since many allies have them and Ukrainian troops would need less training than on the more difficult Abrams. U.S. and German officials have given mixed signals about whether the U.S. and Germans' decisions are late. A U.S. official familiar with the White House thinking said Germany has expressed hesitance to provide its tanks unless the U.S. sends Abrams. The official who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss private Biden administration deliberations added that there was some bewilderment in the administration over the German position since Britain, another NATO ally, has already agreed to provide Challenger 2 tanks. And we are now out. I was just looking at that, yeah. The um, importance of those tanks is that they are much quicker, higher speed, and much more gas mileage, so they can get around uh, in Ukraine much better than the heavy, uh, short-range uh, Abrams tanks that we're supplying. Right. Look. Germany's Pistorius, who took office Thursday, said that opinions among allies were mixed on the tank issue and added that the impression that has occasionally arisen that there is a united coalition and Germany is standing in the way is wrong. And with that, I thank you for listening. Please continue listening to Radio I. And I heard a funny joke. There was a healing service at a local event in a church and the minister was trying to help those that needed some healing. And one man came up and the minister said, what can I do for you, young man? And he said, well, I need help with my hearing. So the minister put his hands over the young man's ears and said, bless you, my child. Please heal this hearing. And when he took his hands away, he asked the young man, did I help? And the young man said, well, I don't know. My hearing isn't until next week. And with that, have a good weekend. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.